There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I've been enjoying your show. I feel like we both kind of know the perils of, uh, or the ups and downs rather of Zoom recording a little bit too well. Yeah, it's... Yeah, there's definitely been some technical difficulties when I've been doing it, but um, it's as you'll know, everyone has varying degrees of uh, equipment, so it does it does kind of the quality does shift throughout the series. I mean, people they're more receptive to it now than they were maybe a year ago. People are kind of used to the slightly more zoomy thing being standard. Oh, what you think people have got used to worse quality? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you know think? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I really notice it now, I think. Like, uh, it, it sort of actually annoys me a little bit when I hear, I mean, I hope to God that this mic is all right, because I'm going to sound like a right bellend <laughs> if, uh, if I'm sort of saying it annoys me when the quality's poor. But um, I don't know. I think it's, I mean, that, that's an interesting point in general, isn't it? Like the devaluation of art slash our perception of quality now. I think in general is our standards are a lot lower, which um, boards well for someone like me who's a DIY independent artist. So, <laughs> I you kind of touched upon that in the Black Guy episode of the podcast. You were talking about how the music industry seems to be shifting more to DIY aesthetic because she was saying that when they drop a video, they drop one that's like vertical and it's like all made on their iPhones, like beaches. It does really well, mm. but then one that they've shot like on a big budget doesn't really seem to pick up the same traction anymore. Yeah, it's weird. I think it's like you feel, I think the general public, I use that term very loosely, is I think the more that they can relate to something, the better. I think that's the TikTok world that we live in. It's like, you know, you spend 10, 15 minutes on TikTok in that wormhole and it's like the simplicity of it slash the kind of budgetness of it. And even like the... The humor itself to me is just like, I mean, maybe I'm not getting something, I'm sure my age here, but like, 
it's just even the humor and the, the thought outness of a joke is so like the standard is so minimal now like to in in order for people to to be invested enough to like repost it or stitch it or whatever you're talking about like memes and stuff not necessarily memes i think memes are a different thing but when when we're talking more specifically about like tiktok or about aesthetic in general or like the standard of you know a podcast or the standard of a song or whatever is because everyone kind of expects it to be diy now i think in a way and also as I said before, I think people relate to something that they feel they can do themselves. The general standard of art, I think, is like kind of declining a little bit. But I actually don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, as I said. Because it's more accessible. It's more accessible. And I think people are still... The, good, the people that are like excelling in this new world are creating stuff that's really unique and it's like a new form of punk in a way i think the whole shift to diy and the fact that you know there's no money in music anymore so people have to adapt and learn how to do things with no money and therefore that will breed more unique interest in art but then at the same time it also means that there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people that are able to do the same thing. So actually kind of clawing your way through the filter and finding the good stuff is maybe harder. I don't know. I mean, look at podcasts, for example. Mm. How many people have got a podcast now? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, was, I felt like that. When I started my podcast, I was just like, well, guess I'm on the bandwagon now then. Is, would you exactly call you as a podcast though? Because you've mm. kind of got something a little bit different going on with the new Spotify feature where you can get music in it and fall. Yeah, I guess it's like halfway between a podcast and a radio show. That's like, yeah, I mean, I'm still figuring out what it is, to be honest. I like have taken a pause from it because, the, I mean, I don't know how much of the first series you've listened to, but it's, it's sort of started as one thing and finished as another thing. I kind of almost feel like the next thing I do with that might be visual as well. I'm sort of thinking that maybe it'll be more like me and another artist in a room chatting rather than, and then, and possibly like, I'm probably giving away too much here. Someone's going to swoop in and steal my idea, but <laughs> I kind of feel like, you know, did you ever watch like Zane Law on MTV on the brown couch? Yeah, yeah. Gonzo. Gonzo, yeah. I really feel like there's space for something like that, but like on YouTube, where it's just like, you know, people having sort of funny, interesting chats. Then there's a music video from a band. Because people aren't consuming that kind of show through MTV anymore, or to my knowledge, they're not. Does anyone watch MTV anymore? I don't know. I... MTV is just reality now, isn't it? Like reality <laughs> TV shows and all that. I don't think it is music anymore. Well, at all. There's no MTV nah, there, channel. there definitely is. Jack Saunders has got a show on, actually, doesn't he? I think he does, yeah. I mean, I haven't watched it, but um, he's probably doing exactly what I've just described, for all I know. But uh, I think that show, it's interesting to come to that. A lot of the clips I've seen of that have been like on Zoom calls with what we were saying about the kind of DIY aesthetic. Yeah, I'm going to go down the VR route, though. That's going to be my <laughs> unique thing. Just to totally 100% give away my idea to the world. I've, uh, I bought a, a GoPro Max recently. 
What's a GoPro Max? It's phenomenal. It's like it shoots in 360 degrees, which will be showcased in my next music video, which I can't reveal any details of. <laughs> but when I bought it, I was like, this is the future. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, so now I'm basically just trying to like think of any excuse to use it. So hence moving a podcast into the the visual world. How does that work? Is that like you have it on your phone and whatever where you tilt your phone, you can see what's being shot? Like, is it filming 360 degrees all at the same time? Yeah, so it's got two cameras, one on the front, one on the back, that are both sort of fisheye. And so it basically gathers everything that you can that you can see. It becomes the perspective of a head, like the head of the viewer is the camera, essentially. So you can like tilt in any direction but with the technology you can kind of do like a director's edit of that so you can like edit anywhere within that frame and sort of put it out as a a normal video or you can give the viewer the option of experiencing it through vr so whether that's through like like the oculus goggles or like you described on your phone kind of moving it around so is that initially what it started as was it a tool initially to give you more options in the editing studio and then they kind of morphed it into the 360 filming or did it start with that as the concept at the heart of it i think it's the other way around i think it's honestly i think it's gonna change like music videos as well i think people haven't really utilized it that much they've used it for like a gimmick shot but it's so accessible in terms of the price and what you can do with it is just so insane. Like once people catch on to it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shift probably gen- general public consumption of virtual reality content as well. The, the thing that's sort of stopped people from maybe from that trend kind of gathering momentum so far is that it's sort of at a price bracket where it's, it's sort of most people wouldn't be able to afford it or would, wouldn't choose to spend money on the te- that technology at this moment in time. But the way that GoPro have, God, this sounds like a fucking advert, but like <laughs> they, they've basically made this technology where the way you can edit it is so insane. It's no longer just about the 360 aspects. I'm sure if, like for years, we've all seen those videos like, if we don't have the technology on Facebook where you can like scroll around in the video, which is essentially what standard 360 is. But what, what they've done now with GoPro is it shoots in like 6K. So the quality is insane. And it means that you can like pan to any part of the frame and sort of doing it all on your phone as well. Like the app is on the phone and it has like, it just means that you can like, basically you can have a video, you can shoot on a GoPro and have an infinite amount of cuts for a video because you, at any point within that, you can choose which part of the frame you, you focus on. And it's so smooth and like the transitions are so cool that it just, it looks like nothing else that you'll have seen. So like the first few videos that you see shot in this way, you're going to be like, my mind is blown. <laughs> and then people are going to get so used to the technology that it's going to move to your phone being able to do that probably within the next couple of years. By that point, the sort of 
standard level virtual reality goggle software will be like, you know, dirt cheap. Will there be glasses as well? Glasses, yeah. Just like you just pop on basically like a pair of like sunglasses or whatever and that's kind of where you're at with it. Yeah. So I, th- so I feel like that's when it's going to start to take off when it gets to that point of convenience. Oh, 100%, yeah. Like when you can fold it up and stick it in your pocket rather than it being like this bulky thing that you carry around. Well, it's like look at the first like cell phones from the 90s. Mm. Like huge. Mm. Like the kind of big like brick things that are way a ton. And then you compare that to what we're using now. I think how much better this pandemic would have been if virtual reality is where it will be <laughs> in 10 years. You know what I mean? Like, we will, we, in 10 years' time, we'll all, I mean, you'll be sitting in the same room having this conversation and it'll be like fucking normal life. We will have no reason to leave the house. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's what I want. I just think... Um, it's inevitable, do you think? I think it's inevitable. And I think, like all things, if you don't embrace the very latest in technology, you will get left behind. Adapt or die. Definitely. I think, I mean, I'm, I say this having not got a TikTok account at the minute because <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how the fuck to navigate that shit show. And actually, interestingly, what we've started talking about, the idea of the devaluation of imagery and music and what people expect now or what people, what the consumer wants. I sort of feel like there is still room to like flip that as well and make it, you know, like either it's super high quality, super interesting, visual, high concept art stuff, which obviously like artists like maybe FK Twigs or someone do really well. Or a live show. Not necessarily a live show, but just like the, the video content and the kind of general social media content. I feel like there's a middle ground for that in like DIY, like as in just being more selective and careful about your imagery, even though you're doing it on a budget. Because obviously those are, it's like there's a, such a huge gulf now. It's either like super DIY or you have like hundreds of thousands of pounds to spend on music videos because you're already an established artist. And then you can, you know, have this different level of art. And I guess the, the argument for the industry at the minute is, well, what's the point? Because as uh, we talked about when I spoke to Izzy from Black Honey, she's saying that, you know, that the, the, the videos that they've made for no budget on their phones have got as much, if not more, traction than the videos they've made for significant budgets. There must be surely some middle ground where you can, using stuff like, you know, the GoPro where the technology is there that you can create something that looks like 10 times more expensive than, than it, it actually is. Uh, and and trying to kind of elevate art in that sense. And I think, I think that's like a personal struggle that I'm like going through myself at the minute is like, I just made an album on my own for the first time, like produced it, played everything on it, wrote everything. It's like 100% me. Directed the music videos. Yeah, direct, every, like literally everything is like me and, a, you know, a little bit of help from my manager. I think that's been like the first stage for me is like learning how to do that and how to be fully independent. That in itself has kind of opened up doors, which I, I hoped would be opened. So I, I've started this process thinking if I can make myself fully 
autonomous, <laughs> then then that might be attractive to to people, to investors, to labels, to distributors, or whatever. To you know, if if they know that I can give them this standard of product, and it costs them nothing to, for me to be able to produce that work, then actually that becomes like a whole more attractive position than knowing that you might be working with an artist where it costs fifty thousand pounds to make an album. It's like if you can, you know, you've got an artist who can make an album of a similar quality for nothing, then that's surely got to be an attractive proposition. Which I can't say anything at the minute, but that that is definitely happening right now. Is like what I hoped is kind of coming into fruition with getting a, a new partner on board to to help with sort of marketing and all that sort of stuff. But in the in the process of that, it's like now I'm thinking, well, how do I elevate that further? Because as much as I love the album that I've just made and it's the favorite thing, it's my favorite thing that I've done. A lot of my energy has been like focused on the process of it and the the learning, the kind of basics of production and how to 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 create something from start to finish. Uh, and now I'm kind of thinking, right? Well, I kind of know the basics of that. I know what I'd do differently next time round. And as I'm coming to write album number four, uh, I'm I'm sort of trying to focus on the art itself and like what I want to get out of the art and what I want to achieve as an artist. Um, where what I think is valid, what I think is important with the world, but also again to kind of touch on what we started off talking about just the idea of like does is there a place for art to be more than just visceral in this world like is there I, i'm 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 aware that you know i'm i'm an artist that comes from a certain musical background as i started as a punk artist making garage rock records that were very political and very had like wearing a message on their sleeve. Then the second album was very experimental, very hip hop influenced, very electronic. It was kind of the most punk thing you could have done. Like the first album was punk in the way it was rallying against the world. And then the second album was almost rallying against punk and the kind of confines of that genre itself. Yeah, I think so. I think it was also just being confused as well. I think, you know, like questioning my place within the world of music and you know, the relevance of rock music at that specific moment in time or like my perception of what's popular, what's, what's, what can make a sustainable career it's, and just a whole, a whole amount of overthinking everything, you know, I think just really overthinking it. And that being also the first record that I did as, as a solo artist, I used the kind of inverted quotation marks there because part of my learning curve over the last few years has been acknowledging the fact that I've always been a solo artist. I think I've just always hidden behind others to, for fear of failure on my own. I think that's been like a major realization is that ever since I started making music, really I've been a solo artist in terms of the person that writes the songs and creates the vision and has the drive and in that first incarnation of Van, I was the signed artist, but I chose to to have the band 
visually there because they were part of the recording and so vital to the live sound and they needed acknowledgement. But at the same time, I think it was also partly out of the fear of me being alone and judged solely as myself. Like I've, I think I've always hidden behind a band to just be like, if this fucks up, then at least there's other people that are also fucking up when, so I kind of need to start owning my failure as much as my success. I think that's. Well, now you're at a point though where you're completely self-producing a record and playing everything on it. Yeah. And I think that was so important, you know, like just from a personal standpoint to just be like, this is me. Like this, this is me in many ways. It's always been me. And I just kind of, to prove it to myself, I needed to start at that point. Like, I, I think I definitely will collaborate again in the future and open that up to, you know, other musicians and producers and all that sort of stuff. But from a, from a standpoint of myself, I think I needed to do that to break through that barrier of like, you know what, like if anyone has any doubts that I'm in this for the long run and that it's my fucking baby, you know what, like after this record, you're not going to think like that. And I know I'm talking to like such a small amount of people that care about what I do, but we live in a world where you have to constantly like self-analyze and you're constantly comparing yourself to other acts or to other artists on similar levels or slightly above or slightly below or whatever it is. And I just think I've concentrated on that too much. And like now I'm finally just concentrating on myself and what I want to achieve over time. And I think I started that, like, sorry, I've gone on such a fucking segue segue here. (laughs) But, you know, like the point I was initially trying to make was that as an artist who has evolved over certain records, now the kind of perceived... I hope that now people don't know what to expect from what I'm going to release and what I'm going to put out. I sort of, I think over the last two records, I've kind of had this fear of like, you know, I like the first album, but it's still quite like basic rock music 101. But the difference is it has a bit of a message to it. But it does it very well. Yeah, I think so. But it's, I guess you, I initially had this fear of like, am I ever going to be able to break out of that and move forward as Vant as my name (laughs) without, you know, people constantly kind of dragging up the musical past or whatever. And now it's like at a point where it's, I, I feel really excited about the fact that I started like that and now I'm sonically changing because really, really it means that I can go anywhere and, if I ever want to delve back into that world, I can. Whereas if it had been the reverse, that would have just been too much of a head fuck, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows? I don't know. I have no idea what the fuck I've just been talking about for the last 20 minutes. But <laughs> Well, there was someone you mentioned a few minutes back that was really interesting where you spoke about how we live in a world where we're very self-analytical. Mm. And we're kind of constantly comparing yourself to others. And with this record, you moved away from that and became a little bit more introspective. Mm. What 
prompted that shift? Was there a moment? Was it a collection of experiences? What pushed you in that direction? I think it was just the making of the second album, really. I think that was a very difficult album for many reasons. But part of it was that, you know, I made about five albums worth of material for that album and it could have been five very different records. The the sort of span of genres was so wide and I know it's still a very eclectic record but there's like it ties together nicely as a bunch of songs and I think once I got out of that I just really wanted to write songs again just just write a song just write a song on an acoustic guitar and that that was the kind of start point for the third album where I just spent three months kind of just writing songs and not overthinking it, just kind of very in a natural place, just just repeating the process, you know, just coming every day, sitting down with an acoustic guitar or sometimes a piano, but mainly acoustic. Pretty much the whole album was written on an acoustic guitar and just really just trying to finish songs. I think there's, I'm sure all artists have experienced this, that it's very easy to start an idea for a track, but actually getting it over the point where it's a finished, structured piece is the hardest part of anything. So I just wanted to sit down and just and make sure I had like an album's worth of material that I could play on an acoustic guitar and it would work. And then I just sort of didn't even intend really on producing it myself or playing, playing it all myself, but I just started building the demos and I started playing some drums on it and I'm probably the worst drummer in the world, but <laughs> I kind of found a way of getting what I needed to get across um, by layering the kit, starting with just kick and snare and then adding cymbals and fills and stuff over the top, which I kind of realized as I was doing it is the way a lot of the records that I love are made anywhere for production choices rather than limitations. <laughs> But in my case, it was limitations. And then I got to a point where I was like, well, I could get someone to drum on it now, but I just like really like the way it sounds as it is. And there's something to be said for the the rawness of the, the way it sounds and the fact that it is all me. And it's like a statement, as we, as we discussed before, that it's, you know, this is very much my project and it's, it's my career. <laughs> so. I think establishing that was important. And now, like now, as I say, like now I've got that kind of base level and I know I can make a record in this way. And it sort of, it takes a lot of the anxiety of being an artist away because at the very least, I know I can create a record of this standard. And obviously the older I get, the more I learn about production, the better that process is going to, be in theory and you can just add layers to it so now it's kind of really it's taken three albums to get to a point where I feel like completely free and I'm moving into the stage of preparing to write the fourth album and the difficulty I'm now facing is like well what is it what is it exactly that I want to make and what is it that I want to tap into because I just, I just really want to do something that's great. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, 
I, I, I'm proud of the work that I've done in the past, but I know it's not undeniable. And I think that's, that's the thing that, that great, great artists give you is over time their work becomes undeniable. And you can show like, you know, 90% of the population something and they get it immediately. They might not like it, but it, they can see why it's, it's warranted as a, as a piece of art. And I know that sounds like I'm completely overthinking it in a way that I didn't do with the third album. But I just, I know that my songwriting's at a point now where I can pretty much write songs that I love. And the process of it is quite easy. So now I can focus on the presentation a little bit more in a way that I might not have been able to in the past. It's interesting that idea of freedom you've spoken about there. And now that you feel like you're at a place that you're completely free, it almost sounds like this is the, the most difficult it's been trying to start a record with the fourth one. I think so, but not, not, not so really. It's a juxtaposition. In a way, but I, I think it's just also like you have, another thing that I've learned over the last sort of 10 years of, of making music kind of full time is that, well, not even that long, five years, six years. I think that's actually, that's a good point if, just before I go into what I was about to say, but I'm, I'm, a working I'm from a working class background. I was in full-time employment from the ages of 18, 17 actually, 17 till 24 when I signed my uh, first record deal. I think I kind of like also had this fear, which I'm sure a lot of people have when they get to the, the, the end of their 20s. Like I'm 31 now, I just turned 31 a couple of weeks ago. It's such a hard period in your life for a lot of reasons, especially if you feel like you haven't achieved what you wanted to achieve by that point. Weirdly for me, like I kind of had achieved what I wanted to achieve to a certain extent. But then it was like this idea of like, you know, having everything that you'd ever, ever dreamed of, um, signing with a major label, having this huge backing, playing all these crazy big shows at festivals and all of this sort of stuff. And then suddenly having all of that support completely stripped away and uh, losing, you know, your band and your friends and, and all this sort of stuff and just kind of this whole turmoil and uh, upheaval and then going through the process of making a second record that even though I, th I think it deserved at least some attention from the industry was completely ignored by it and completely, you know, no one would, would touch me with a barge pole like journalists, radio DJs that I thought I had a rapport with would just, just outright ignore me because I wasn't going through the process of the way things are done in the industry. I wasn't doing it through a PR company. I wasn't doing it through a plugger because... Why is that still a limitation though? Like in this age where we're, where we're you know, we're also connected. Why is that still the way of doing things? Because I find the same thing, you know, and it's, it's mm. bizarre to me sometimes. I think it's just, it's old money, isn't it? It's like they're they've created there's this whole section of the industry that relies on the middlemen like we both know that that a dj can could sit and listen to a few songs and be like i want to play that i want to play that i like that that's a load of dog shit but 
that's not the reality of the situation. It's, it's, you know, you have to go through these companies or through a label or whatever it is for someone to kind of have this pre-endorsement that allows a DJ or a journalist to, to express what they want about this piece, whether that's negative or positive is for the, the individual to decide that these systems are so built into place that, you know, you would be talking about thousands, tens of thousands of people that would, could be without a job that are kind of in today's world are like unnecessary. As you say, like 10 years ago, uh, or maybe 15 years ago, whatever, pre-internet, like you needed those people because how the fuck do you put a record on a DJ's plate now? Whereas like, you know, today you, you can see things like where there is moments like Jack Sanders doing his like discord thing where he kind of invites new artists to send him their music. And there is kind of direct connections there, but really the percentage of people that are getting played on his show are still, you know, dramatically in the kind of uh, a plugger. plugger, the plugger spectrum. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so going through that process myself of like, it just being impossible and like no one wanting to touch it and then getting through to this point where I've made the third album having like literally have no money left as well. I think it's been like easy to neglect the actual positives of that experience and, and also realizing that away from the kind of, you know, where I am in the, the food chain or whatever, um, I've only really been making music full time for six years because of my background and, and the fact that I like, you know, didn't have parents that lived in London when I was a kid. I didn't have parents that could afford to buy me all of the best equipment in the world. And I didn't have the time to commit fully to music when I was a teenager because of, you know, having to do a full time job and all that sort of stuff that I, I really have just like given myself some slack recently that I'm at a third album and I'm 31. I could have been at my third album when I was 24 if my circumstances were different. And I'm not in any way bemoaning that because my life experiences have fed into my music and I wouldn't be writing the kind of music that I'm writing without that. But at the same time, I have just realized that, you know, age is meaningless. It's like, it's, it's about the music and about the process. And as we talked about before, I'm at a point where it's like, I feel like I'm getting to a stage where I can just be free and just, you know, fingers crossed a few things go my way in the next few months, I'll be in a position where I can, I know that I've got longevity in terms of financial security. Uh, and that will allow me to like finally kind of create art without any of the, ba- the, the boundaries or restrictions or anxiety that I've had over the last sort of six years. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been like a journey, man, like already, like only like three albums in and it's like, you know, the, the highs and lows are extreme. Yeah. It's interesting to think. What was in there about that kind of middleman world that runs the music industry and also what you were saying about getting to that place of freedom and the way that you're kind of constructing this all on your own and that would be quite enticing to a label. 
is almost about trying to find a place that you can be free within that system. So accepting that you have to work within it, but creating a space for yourself that can be creatively liberating. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where I'm arriving. Like, I mean, touch wood, like it's pretty much done now. So hopefully I can talk about this. Obviously, I'll tell you to cut this out if it doesn't happen. But I'm kind of in a process of 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 um, starting a partnership with a, a distribution company, which is the way that most people release music most independent artists now release through a distribution company but the difference with this one is that they'll give me some money up front like in advance for a record like but in a more similar way to kind of you know if if a author was writing a book and it was like you know an agreed fee for support during the period of writing the book or in my case creating an album that is projected on royalties over a five-year period. So now it's, you know, now it's hard as an independent artist to live off streaming royalties at the level of artists that I'm at. But if you can get a condensed projection of those royalties for a five-year period immediately up front, then it becomes more sustainable. So it's, you know, like obviously the, the, the kind of, the rate of um, releases for most musicians is like, you know, one to two years per album. So like if, if every one to two years I'm able to get like an advance on the next five years of streaming, then actually that becomes quite sustainable. And that becomes, a, I think, a better model for artists in general, because it, it, we are still figuring it out, you know, it's this, the other aspect of my personal journey was that when I signed with Parlophone in 2015, it was right at the moment where the industry was shifting from physical, physical sales into streaming and no one really knew how to make money from streaming at that point. It was a bit of like a kind of chaos. Yeah, just like, you know, some things worked, some things didn't people were just kind of finding their feet with it all. Whereas this sort of upfront kind of relationships that people are having with uh, sync and licensing companies and distributors now might be the model going forward where the extreme of that is like when you look at Bob Dylan selling his catalog for 300 million or whatever, but a low level artist can sell part of their catalog for a period of years that will help them sustain themselves while they're creating more music to add to that catalog. And then slowly over time, obviously, that catalog becomes more valuable because in theory, every time you release something, you should be feeding people back into that catalog. So it just kind of consistently grows and grows. And if you have one song that's like a real fucking hit or like gets blown up on playlists on streaming or whatever, then that's just going to help the rest of your catalog grow. And obviously that in line with the world of sync and TV and all that sort of stuff and just getting one or two adverts, even per album, actually becomes like quite a sustainable model for, for mid-level artists, I think. So I'm like, I actually feel really, it's been really hard. Like I'm not going to sort of gloss over the fact that I've, 
not had an easy time, especially during coronavirus and all that sort of stuff. And so much of this industry is based on blind faith. And when you start creating something, you know that you're not going to get any return for that uh, product for probably at least 12 months, most probably 24 months. So you kind of trying to put yourself into this work knowing that A, you don't know when you're going to get paid for it and B, you might not get paid for it at all. So it's, it's like, <laughs> I think the model I've just described could potentially offer a way for artists that are at a similar level to myself or a little bit, you know, below me or a little bit above me, whatever kind of way you want to look at it, where it, it might actually become sustainable again. In theory, though, would that be a deal that you could only really achieve once you're kind of a couple albums in and you can make that projection on streaming numbers? I mean, I think that's what's been the case in my, in my particular instance, but it's based on the second record rather than, and, and what I've just made, rather than the first album, which obviously has a different twist on it because you know the, the kind of numbers that I've got on that record are relative to the amount of money that was spent on it which was a lot so <laughs> it's like you know and and that is an underachievement the amount of numbers that uh, on the first album in the eyes of the industry are like a massive underachievement for the amount that was spent on it which is why I'm no longer signed to Parlophone but creating an album and releasing it entirely on my own and getting the level of streams that I got from that, which obviously is indebted to a lot of the work that was put in on the first album, has now allowed me to be in a position where you can kind of gauge roughly how much an album's going to make over a, a prolonged period. And it might make more, it might make slightly less, but that's a comfortable enough position for the company that I'm going to be working with to invest in it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in a lucky position in that sense, but I don't think there's any reason why, you know, like young bands and artists just starting off can't get to that position fairly quickly. And it might just be a case of it being at a much lower level initially than what I'm looking at, and then you can just build on it. But I don't, I don't see any reason why companies won't invest, you know, a few thousand pounds into someone at least initially in this model because it's the reality is that it's only going to get better for artists I think like the more that we push and the more that prominent people within the industry are pushing for fairer royalty rates for songwriters and that sort of stuff the power is slowly coming back into the, the hands of the artists I think you just got to hold in there I mean like you said though when you signed in 2015 that was kind of when it was in the process of shifting the industry always seems to take about 10 years to catch up and based upon what you're saying now where it's just starting, that would kind of tie in line with that projection that maybe by 2025 or at a point where that's now a much more normal thing. Yeah, I think so. I hope so as well because, you know, I, I know myself so many talented people that aren't being paid what they should be paid for what they do. I, I don't know if it'll ever be at a level where they're getting what they should be getting surely we can find a way of, of making it sustainable for those people. I think that's the key thing is that, you know, 
like we talked about before, do we really want to devalue art to a point where there's no definition now, there's nothing that makes us feel something beyond an instantaneous five-second reaction, which is really where the world is at the minute. You know, it's, it's all about things that you see once and then you never see them again. Yeah, and it's like when you watch, I mean, that kind of translates into everything, even when you watch a film and you really enjoy it, you're then like, okay, what's the next thing I want to watch on Netflix? Yeah. I've done that, that's it done, I'm, you bounce on straight away in a similar fashion. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's alternatives out there to, to not follow that narrative and those alternatives are becoming more accessible. So I think that's, you know, that's one of the major positives of Spotify is the fact that you can listen to anything that you want now immediately at a decent quality and you can then go off on this tangent and listen to dozens of other things that will inspire you in in a similar way. And the world of kind of cinema, to touch on what you were just saying, is slowly starting to do that with the kind of uh, little add-ons that you can get now on like Amazon Prime. Like I recently just um, got a trial for like the BFI player, and there's Some like great stuff on there. Yeah, is there's loads. If if that's your thing, which for me it is, like I love cinema as much as I love music. You have to kind of just remind yourself that that stuff exists. I think that's that's the key thing because it's not. It's like we talk about this instantaneous world that we have, but it doesn't mean that the great stuff isn't still there. It just, you just have to look for it a little bit more. I think the strange, the thing I find particularly strange about things like TikTok and all that sort of stuff, it's also self, it's also self-motivated. You know, it's, it's all about the general consumer on there having their 15 minutes in the sun or whatever. It's about, you know, the possibility that you can upload a video and that can get millions and millions of players um, because it captures a particular wave of trend. But what does it actually mean? You know what I mean? That's, that's the main question that I have is like, again, because I'm completely independent now, there's obviously there's so many pros and cons to that. There's like the pros of I haven't got someone at a label breathing down my back going, you should really start a TikTok. <laughs> do, you, do you think, you, you know, like if you maybe like posted photos of your food on your Instagram story more, then that would engage pe- with people in a way that you're not do, currently Do you think it's all doing. bullshit though? Like I feel like 90% of the stuff that people chat about that is kind of nonsense. Yeah, no, it is to a certain extent. It is, but like, you know, if you're, if you're a young artist and you don't really know what to do and you don't have the confidence to be like, this is what I want to put out, then you have to listen to those other people, those advisors, those social media experts and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> the thing that really bothers me about it is you're draining creative energy based on something that's meaningless. Why should I be thinking of like a funny outfit that I could wear and like, you know, my makeup routine <laughs> <laughs> and all this sort of stuff that like, you know, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort to put into the world for relatively little gain. And also, like, does it actually translate? You know what I mean? Like, there's so many people that are 
musicians or actors or I don't know, fucking dancers or whatever. Maybe dancing's a bit different, but definitely like actors and musicians who are on there and are actors and musicians, but essentially are just models. You know what I mean? It's like it's an it's like interesting when you see these musicians or artists that have more followers on Instagram than they do followers on Spotify, for instance. Yeah. Because it doesn't translate, you know what I mean? It's like people aren't following those people for the, the beautiful music that they make. Because it's an afterthought, it, I think the two can be simpatico, you know what I mean? Like I think you can, if you, if you nail the visual and you're comfortable with like posting a sexy photo of yourself every day and you can make incredible music and incredible art, then obviously that's the golden ticket, you know what I mean? That's the one... That's, the, that's what labels want. That's what the industry want is that sort of simultaneous kind of connection. But I think the vast majority of us don't have enough creative energy to be able to achieve both things. So I think surely it's got to make more sense to put it into the art that's going to last forever than the, the Facebook, TikTok post that's going to last for an hour. Yeah, no, I agree. Are you still off social media uh, with the band stuff? I'm dabbling with it, but it's, it's, I think I, I think I, I did start to try and pick it up again before putting out the first single in the dark times. Having put that out, I've realized that, you know, like you get this initial buzz when you put out an actual piece of art you don't get from, you know, a couple of well-positioned self-timer photos like I think I've realized that you know for me luckily at a stage where I have enough of a core fan base that I can just put out the good stuff and that's kind of all I need to put out um and I don't know if that's just me naively kind of not wanting to do more as well and just using that as a sort of indoctrinated excuse not to do so but I just, I think in general, like, which feeds back into what we started off talking about is like, I just want to make the best possible art that I can make. I don't want to spend my time worrying about things that may or may not impact that. Because it just, because it feels unnecessary. I mean, I, I think it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't it? I think that's, that's the eternal horrible limbo that we, we find ourselves in as creative people is how much do we engage with that? How much do we just ignore it totally? The, the, I mean, the, the, what, the other flip side of it that we haven't really talked about is, well, is there ways of elevating that side of things? You know what I mean? Like making it more, like when you put something out, maybe instead of not posting at all or posting every day, you post once a week, but the thing that you post is, a piece of art in itself, you know, even if it's instantaneous, it's still got value. I have no idea what that is, which is, is, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to figure out myself is like how I can put out more content that I'm proud of and, and feeds into the narrative of my journey as an artist. Or whether that is whether that is necessary at all, you know. I, I'd like you look at artists like Black Midi, for example, who, like, I know they're a complete anomaly. Not unfortunately, not all of us can be like that. 
where you just have no social media presence and your live show is so good that it catapults your career. But now that, you know, now they're just posting things when they need to post things. It's not like they're not on social media anymore, but they'll just post, you know, we've got a gig coming up. We've got an album coming out. And there's like a much greater surge of attention for those one-off announcements than maybe if they were like trying to string out what the bass player's favorite fucking uh, Call of Duty Twitch streamer is. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) They maybe also come back to what we were saying though about having those connections. Because who are they on label-wise again? Uh, Rough Trade, I think. Yeah, so you've got a little bit of kind of clout there that maybe allows you to do that to a certain degree too. You can get it. You can get it played on radio, and you can get all the. I mean, although they only do a post whenever you know something comes out, all the blogs and all the enemy and everything then jump on it and share it everywhere. And that's partly because they'll have you know they'll have a PR team. They'll have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might it might seem like organic uh, reappraisal. There's a certain aspect of that, and because they're critically favoured and make great art, uh, there's a certain want from journalists and DJs to to get on board with it because it, you know, makes them have a bit of cred as well. But there'll still be someone getting paid through Rough Trade to to send those emails out and to, <laughs> you know, pitch it to DJs and all that sort of stuff. It's not like it's a free pass. Uh, and like you say, having a credible, well-respected label like Rough Trade on board definitely makes an impact. I think like, you know, generally talking about that, that's like, that's the dream I think for most artists is, you know, if insert cool trendy label here came up to me and was like, we want to give you this much money to make a record, then obviously I would love to do that. But, you know, it's it's so much competition now that those opportunities are few and far between. So maybe the model for you know, talented uh, artists that don't uh, quite have the kudos is uh, is the kind of the distribution route that we we were chatting about before. It's um, I don't know, man. Like it's you know, if you if we'd had this conversation two months ago, I probably would have had a much more pessimistic outlook on it. I think ultimately the the thing that you need more than anything as a young artist, is self-belief. And I know it's such a cliched thing to say, but you have to back yourself because if you don't back yourself, no one else will. And the only way that you're going to get to a position where you've created a body of work, I think that's the other really important thing is you need, as much as the album isn't valued as much now, it, it is valued in the eyes of the industry because it's a, it's a testament to you having the drive and persistence to get to gather that much material that it warrants a, a full length release. So you have to have like so much blind faith, like so much kind of belief that the future will be bright <laughs> when it's <laughs> when it looks grim. And that's like, you know, that's been the case for me. It's like, like I say, like until I put the last, the first single out, it was like so unknown what was going to happen for this album. And it's still massively unknown, but 
it just feels a little bit more achievable now, I think. That first single almost ties into a little bit about what we've been talking about to kind of touching upon similar thematic kind of ground. This idea of trying to find it's hope. It's almost like we planned it. <laughs> and can you find hope? It kind of looks at that a little bit. Too. Was that coming from COVID or was that kind of coming from a similar place to what we've just been discussing? Just for people that obviously have no idea who the fuck I am. <laughs> it was, I actually wrote that song in 2019 and it's based on a poem by Bertolt Brecht that was written in 1938 on the eve of World War II. The, the way I discovered, oh, this is like the most pretentious thing in the world, but I discovered it through a short film called The Fall by Jonathan Glazer, a British, great British director. Under the Skin guy. Exactly. Same guy. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he made this short for the BBC that he wrote off the back of that poem. He, wrote, he read that poem and it hit something with him creatively and it, it spouted this kind of short narrative. And when I, heard, when I read the poem in the, in the article, in the interview with him, I just, I was amazed by the simplicity of it and also how, you know, you, can, you will be able to take that line from the dawn of mankind until we eventually destroy ourselves in some AI e economic global warming disaster in the next, you know, 10 years <laughs> and, uh, and it will still be relevant. And I just kind of built a song around that. And that's the first time I've ever done that. It's the first time I've ever used someone else's words from one of my songs. But I think the thing that is brilliant about it is it's just, as I say, it is so simple. It's the, the line of the verses in the dark times, will there still be singing? Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. You know, it's just so relevant, man, like to, to any situation you're in, whether that's personal turmoil or whether it's something like what we've just experienced as a, as a, as a worldwide species. I think that's the, that's the key thing about, you know, I'm not saying that I'm fucking like reinvented the wheel or that it's like stands up to like fucking Mozart or something. But the, I think boiling ideas down to their most simplistic form being able to use words to paint like a broad assumption of life is where I want to be as an artist moving forward. And I think the, the thing that I'm really interested in, which I'm, is, I, I never really answered the question you said about the, the fourth album being difficult. I think I did to a certain extent, but one thing I forgot to mention is the other realization I've had in the time that I've been allowed to make art full time is the importance of absorbing other art and other music and other films and artists as in painters and visual artists and all that sort of stuff. The main thing that I want to concentrate on really moving forward is how, how we summarize life in a beautiful way without using religious metaphor as as the kind of the crux of of relation like you look at artists like who i love i love artists like leonard cohen but he falls so heavily on religious metaphor for for a lot of his work and the moments where he doesn't do that to me are the most powerful and then you look at artists more like neil young or 
Bob Dylan. I'm just using big stereotypical names here just to kind of paint the picture that I, I'm looking at. And it's like they manage to use words in a different way where it doesn't necessarily have to have ideological metaphor that everyone can relate to to still get across the same problems and fears that we face as, as a species. So obviously that requires thought. So I think there's not, there's something to be said for like, you know, in a way I rushed into the last record I made and it's given a flavor of it becoming really personal and really about my life and really, um, it's almost like autobiographical in a way, but it's broad enough that you wouldn't necessarily pick up on that the first time you hear it. But then moving forward, I think like I want to get back to concentrating on on wider issues, but but like finding ways of saying that without obviously sounding like some washed up fucking hippie stoner, <laughs> which essentially is what I am. <laughs> it's like it's difficult, you know. But I think you you've got to allow your mind to just sit with ideas some of the time. I think that's the other thing with society is that everything feels so fast paced and so like you have to constantly be involved in the story. And I think that this last year has been like a massive case in point of that with, you know, the various atrocities that we've faced, the various movements that have come into prominence, like Black Lives Matter and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't post about any of that stuff because I was in a period where I wasn't engaging with social media, but I did feel like a pressure of like, should I be posting about this? Like I haven't posted anything for six months, but should I be posting about it? And then ultimately I was just like, you know what? Like I know who I am. People who listen to my music and know the message that it has know how I feel about these things and know that obviously I'm in support of any of opposing any injustice and all that sort of stuff that it's like, I just feel like we don't need that pressure as humans. You know what I mean? I think support where you can elevate where you can be an ally where you can, but don't feel like you need to it to take away from your own personal growth and also don't let it affect the, the time that you need to create something that might be relevant to that. And could also, aid the cause in a more impactful way like i mean look at the debut record you put out that probably or that almost definitely brought attention to a lot of issues that you putting a post on instagram wouldn't yeah i hope so i think that's something that like like i have to remind myself quite a lot is because i'm not as engaged as i was with the fight you know the fight for equality and all that sort of stuff it's, it's partly because it, it, it was so energy consuming that period like from, you know, 2014 till late 2017, I was doing like everything I possibly could to use the platform that I had in that time to, to speak about issues that I felt were important. And in, and at that moment in time, there was very few other artists doing the same. It was certainly within the world of rock music. It was only in light of Brexit and Trump, which my music was preempting, that people really started to use their voices, which is great. And, and once people did start to use their voices, 
it quickly became apparent that a white straight man is probably not the best person to be, you know, the front and center focal point for that movement. So I sort of feel like I did what I could at a time where I needed to do that. And now like my role is more to support other artists that are from more who've had more struggle and problems within their life than, than I've ever had or ever will have. And to just sort of acknowledge the fact that, you know, maybe what I can write about in the privileged position that I have as a white straight man is starting to try and boil down to the, the core of what it is to be alive and the difficulties of, of just being a human rather than it being anything beyond that, you know? And like, I obviously want to, if, if things change and, you know, I get to a position where I'm on Radio 1 again and I'm playing big festivals, then at that point in time, I will try and use my voice again or at least try and elevate other people that need the, the, the limelight more than myself. But I think for now, it's kind of, you know, as I say, about supporting others and and trying to find things to write about that can speak to to everyone in a different way. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 